0: During the first season of the Up to podcast, I had several companies and entrepreneurs approach me about potential partnerships, but I'm really selective before choosing to do something like that. One choice we did make happily is to partner with Vivid Front, a full-service digital marketing and website design agency based in Cleveland that works with both local and national brands. They've built their entire client base on referrals and they've won a lot of awards, including the 2019 Inc. Magazine Top 5,000 Fastest Growing Companies, North Coast's Top Places to Work, and several others. They're known for their talent, they're known for their creativity, they're known for their culture, a firm I liked before we agreed to partner together for the show. Check out vividfront.com, or you can email me, and I'll introduce you to their dynamic leader, Andrew Spott. Hi, I'm Adam Kaufman and you're listening to the Up To podcast. I've been fortunate throughout my career to be networking and serving and working with some of the most successful and influential leaders in America. Eight years ago, we started Up To as a live event series which showcased leaders who I thought were as humble as they are successful. The humility piece is very important as we identify these leaders who can hopefully inspire others. And over the years, We've interviewed trailblazers from the fields of medicine, from business, from the military, nonprofit leaders, from politics, and more. We really focus our interviews on the non-business aspects of their lives, and we found that there's a real thirst to explore their hearts and their minds in maybe atypical ways. So time and again, attendees of UpTo asked us to expand the event so that more people could participate and benefit from the special conversations taking place. that's why we started this podcast our guest today has been a u.s special ambassador a wall street executive with goldman sachs an advisor to several u.s presidents and countless corporate executives co-founder of his own private equity firm the executive producer of a pbs documentary his opinion pieces have appeared in the washington post and the usa today the biggest papers in america he's the founder of a high impact mentoring program He's even had an initiative bringing together people of different faiths. He's a professor at one of the country's top business schools. I'm still going. A board member of a historically black Morehouse College. Board member of ABC Squared looking for a cure for brain cancer. He's the founder of Path North, the context in which I met our guest today. He's the founder of a significant men's retreat at Windy Gap in North Carolina. He played college across at UNC earned degrees from both Oxford and Princeton, and I know uh, he's working on a book that he's nearly completed. My goodness, Doug Holiday, I wish you spent a uh, more productive time with your <laughs> life. Welcome. I've always been lazy. I, my goodness, unbelievable. How are you doing? Good, good. Thank you for doing this. This Is this your first podcast, I think? Uh, I think so, yeah. Nobody else would have me, so it's uh, delighted. (laughs) Well, welcome to Up To. You are the epitome of what we like to feature here. We like to showcase leaders who are as humble as they are successful. I don't know if I'm either, but I'm glad to be with you. Well, let's start simply with the book. What's
1: the book about? You've been working on a book for a little while. Tell us about it. So this book, kind of pulls together, Adam, everything that I've cared about all my life from a young age, which is about how do you discover meaning on the journey? Because so many of us get so busy doing that we forget what it means to be mm-hmm. and what it means to really explore and to use our imagination to really discover the deeper purpose for why we're here. You know, what's beyond success? And you know, there's a great quote A southern writer wrote, uh, You can get all A's and flunk life. And I think so many of the people that I've had the privilege to know, on, you know, whether they had wealth, notoriety, accomplishment of all sorts, they have one thing in common. It can uh, isolate them, disconnect them. And they find, like the old movie, you know, What's It All About, Alfie, they're saying, What is it all about? Is there anything more? So that's been my journey. That's what the book's going to be about. Great. It's going to be for people, I'd say almost anybody that, that has had some measure of success on whatever level, whether the CEO of a, a Fortune 100 company, hedge fund manager, or uh, teacher of the year in the fifth grade. Right. There's unintended consequences of, of accomplishment. They can isolate you in a weird way. You've, you've taught me how loneliness
0: at the top really is a true phenomenon. And the higher the yeah. top, the
1: lonelier it can be. It's tragic. And, and the mistakes you make. And you say, how does that happen? Well, part of why it happens, you have unlimited resources to, all of us have flaws, but when you have these kind of resources and access, you can do even more damage mm-hmm. than the average bear. And I feel like a lot of the people around
0: these successful leaders are afraid to say no. Yeah. Whether it's the Hollywood executive who everyone apparently knew what was going on there, but they were afraid to talk about it because he was so powerful.
1: Yeah. No, you're absolutely right, Adam. So I try to talk about how do you create a life so that doesn't happen? Mm. You know, we all make mistakes. We all screw up, but there are the, you know, Aristotle talked about a life of thriving and the elements that contribute to that are really knowable. That's what's astonishing today. Mm. You know, you know that isolation produces bad things. Even in the book of Genesis, one of the first things it says, it's not good for a man to be alone. We usually think of that in the marriage context, but it's in a life context. Mm. Bad things happen when we get isolated. And we're in an age now where I think it's over half the people in America live alone where, where you know, the former uh, Surgeon General, Vivac Murthy, identified loneliness as the top health crisis. Not smoking, not obesity, mm-hmm. but loneliness. In the U.K. last year, they even created a minister-level
0: yeah. position. exactly. Secretary of Loneliness to combat yeah. loneliness. yeah.
1: So I think in my book, what I'm trying to do is say, there are, these things are knowable. Mm-hmm. One of them is... To create a posse in your life. Mm-hmm. You know? In a faith context we call that fellowship. But who are the people yeah. uh, Accountability in your life? Group or Yeah, peer however group. you look at it, but the people that you can check in with mm. that really give a damn whether you get up in the morning. Right. I mean you hear these terrible stories where somebody died and a week later somebody somehow finds that out. Right. You know, it's just it are we're, we're at a very strange time. Early on I'd like to share
0: with our listeners that our guest today, Doug Holliday, is himself a spectacular interviewer of others. So it's a thrill for me to be interviewing you, Doug. Do you have any good tips on how
1: to interview powerful people? Ah, uh, Don't fall asleep on them. It's uh-huh. always a problem. Okay, good. <laughs> well, well,
0: I'm, I'm caffeined up today. And don't get
1: in a fight with them. That's the other thing. That's, that's always a <laughs> good, good advice,
0: too. But we're not on like Crossfire, Pat Buchanan and Michael Kinsley. When you interview leaders, whether it's for your book or on live stage situations, are there any common traits among high achievers that really stick with you?
1: Yeah, I I think, you know, as I mentioned, A, many of them are disconnected and lonely. It almost is, you know, goes without saying that, sadly. I think the other thing is a lot of time with their children, they haven't connected well. Because where they're comfortable is doing and making and creating and making money or whatever it is. Mm. And as a result, that's their comfort zone. And this other messy zone of children and their craziness a little more nebulous. It's not so black and white as an Excel spreadsheet. Right. So they can tend to disengage there. The other is, I think. Many of them don't have a language, particularly men, to talk about what matters mm. because most men, you know, really are taught to shut down at a very young age. You know, be a, strong, be a man, yeah, the be tough, and here. all that. Right. So, if you doubt me on that, in the morning, if you go out running or walking you typically see three women walking together. And and if you eavesdrop, they're talking about stuff that really matters. Yeah, at home their or their kids, parents. Yeah. Their marriages, their mm-hmm. l- depression or whatever it is. Men are so afraid to be with another man unless they have something to do. Play golf, go to a game. Smoke a cigar. Yeah, it's got to be almost task-oriented and... Often it doesn't really get down to anything that, that really matters because they don't, they don't have a language. So what I've tried to do is try to make it easier for men to talk about what really matters and try to get them, you know, asking the right question is always huge. I remember when mm-hmm. we had our salon for Path North in San Francisco and um, it's like in 10 minutes half the room was crying. These were top financial people and CEOs, and I said, simply ask this question, what would your kids say is most important to you? Mm -hmm. And, oh, my gosh, all of a sudden. The self-reflection begins. Yeah, they don't want to answer that, but it's terrifying on a certain level.
0: The the honest truth could be tough for them to to hear. Yeah,
1: for all of us, you know.
0: Stephen Covey wrote one of the best-selling books of all time, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. You have had a career where you could almost write like the opposite, the Seven Problems
1: of Highly Effective People, <laughs> Yeah. maybe your book is about that indirectly, or? Well, it is indirectly. It, it's it's my course that you know about, Adam, and I teach at Georgetown Doug Business School. Doug teaches at
0: Georgetown in Business School there. Yeah,
1: and I it's a very different course. It's a kind of a mashup of the humanities, the arts, theology, uh, finance, business, uh, all kinds of things, but I centered around 10 questions you have to ask to have a life of thriving. Mm-hmm. And um, I think the discovery process is in asking the right questions.
0: So we're sitting here in Washington, D.C. today. You live here. You also have a place in New York. You've been to Africa over 30 times. I mean, where do you find the most meaning geographically when you're feeling most alive?
1: Oh, that's a great question, Adam. Um, I think it's with the poor. You know, when I'm in Ethiopia, that was a life changer for me, my first time in my early 20s. And I've been going back ever since. I think you're going this fall too, right? Yeah, going this fall. I think most people think of it wrongly. I you know, when Jesus talked about, you know, the poor. I think he meant more what they do for us than what we do for them. Mm. So when I tell people when they go to third world countries and they have these things, I'm going to go for three days and change the world, I say, you know, why don't you go for three days and change yourself? Because if you are attentive, you're going to learn things about what really matters. Yes. And it, it'll be astonishing. So, so I've been going for all these years uh, for my own sake. And it, it just feeds me. It puts everything in perspective. I've sent so many CEOs and so many of their children to, to Ethiopia, for example, because it puts them it puts everything in perspective. Instead of saying, you know, should I buy a $30 million home in Greenwich, Connecticut, or a $40 million, they go over there and they realize mm-hmm. None of this crap matters. This you know? story
0: reminds me. I wasn't even planning on bringing it up, but one of my favorite stories of yours is one of your peers had you mentor their son about what job to
1: take, maybe mm. out of business school, and <laughs> yeah. you gave him some different advice. Do you want to talk yeah, about that a little yeah, bit? Yeah, yeah. So this is a, a guy who is a number two at a uh, Fortune 100 company. He said, "Would you meet with my son, who's graduating from business school, and?" He's wondering about what to do. He He had all the offers from the cool firms. Yeah, but he also knew he wanted to stay in this one place, and he knew Morgan Stanley was hiring two people. So my friend said, would you meet my son? So he flew up, and he's in my office, and uh, I knew what he wanted. He he was kind of thinking, well, maybe Doug knows somebody and can help me. Because he said... He said, I know the other people competing for the job and they they had better grades and so they'll probably get the job. And he said, but he said, what do you think? And I said to him, I said, well, Blake, uh, here's my thought. Even if you were offered the job, I wouldn't take it. Mm. And he looked at me like, what the right. hell did I come all the way up here for? Bad advice. <laughs> and I said, um, I would do something different. Why don't you make yourself interesting? and uh, do something else. He said, well, what do you mean by that? And I said, well, you know, I've been around all these elite firms, and, you know, Goldman Sachs, we'd be interviewing people after they were Rhodes Scholars, they won the Nobel right. Prize, and, yeah. you know, everybody... Navy SEALs. Yeah, everybody has everything. And I said, so I would say do it count contrary. Do something really different. He said, what, what are you talking about? I said, well, for example, have you ever been to East Africa? He said, no. I I said, how about Nairobi? You know what? He says, no. That's the capital of Kenya. And what if I were to say to you, why don't you go there? I'll get you a job, and you you work with the 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 Nairobi Stock Exchange. Right, right. And he's like, he doesn't have a passport. He's like, what? What did I? What on earth are we talking about? So I said, Blake, just think about it. Let me know. So his father calls me up says, what was that all about? My son was just really confused. I said, well, give it a little time. So the kid calls me a week later and says, okay, I'm in. I'll go to Nairobi. Wow. So he goes to Nairobi, and I said, "What's what this is going to do? Just imagine you come back, and you're interviewing, and instead of saying, well, I've got a finance degree, and I am just had all these internships, you're saying, I went to Nairobi, and I worked for the stock exchange.' What does it say about you? You're comfortable with risk? You're a global thinker. Mm-hmm. You want to be a broader, better person. Global it says citizen. all these right. things about you. Very desirable. And I said, so he came back in six months, got three offers the first week. Great advice. And it just changed his whole life. Spectacular. So I said I say to this my class, I said, look, everybody's trying to go through the front door. Let them have it. Mm. Go through the window. You have this
0: uncanny ability. I've met so many people who say to me, oh yeah, Doug Holiday is one of my best friends. So they all think you are really close and you are close with people. But I have a feeling that if you said who your best friends are, and I'm not going to ask you that, it wouldn't be the people who all tell me that they're so close with you. You have this uncanny ability to make people feel so important. Where do you think that comes from? And it even includes homeless people. You mentioned Jesus and the poor. You taught me to look in their eyes, even if you're not giving them money, look in their eyes, ask their name? Like, where does this come from? Did someone teach you all of this or just um, your own?
1: I had a great mentor, Chuck Reinhold. Who was Chuck? What, uh, was he Chuck, a business colleague? No, no, or? Chuck, Chuck was a, he was a guy, I grew up in an atheist family, Okay. Uh, which was kind of interesting. Nobody, I've never met anybody like that, but my father grew up in a small town in Mississippi, got turned off with, he was a very bright guy and asked a lot of questions. And this little town didn't want anybody to do that. So he kind of felt, you know, that that wasn't appropriate. So he always was on a journey trying to figure out. So uh, he kind of decided faith wasn't for him. So we grew up basically unchurched and, and, you know, didn't have any affiliation. But Chuck came into my life who was unlike anybody I ever met. He was a phenomenal athlete, Mm -hmm. and I, I loved sports, and... He built trust, won the right to be heard. How did you meet Chuck? Through a business uh, he, he was No, he was in, it was in my high school. Okay. He would come to uh, athletic practices and build trust. So for a year, he just did that and became friends. We'd play basketball. We'd do all these things. And then through that, he started asking me questions about what I believed and what I wanted. And through that, I discovered a simple faith. And that's been fantastic. So one of the things I feel like when I approach faith and I have atheist friends, Muslim friends. I have everybody. Right. But I, I bring the eye of a skeptic from my father, whichever they like, and the eye of a simple follower. So it's a really interesting two combination. Two lenses. Yeah, yeah. Two different lenses. So I, I hate hypocrisy. And so I, so you say, how do you, how do you develop closeness with somebody? I'd say it's real simple. Our point of identity with people is not our strength, but our weakness. Absolutely. So there's always somebody richer, smarter, better looking, more accomplished. So if you try to go through that door, it's crowded. Mm -hmm. And I'm in... And there's always someone with a higher accomplishment level. And I'm with these people all the time that have so much and they're just freaking out like God this guy's done so much more than me and they nobody but if you come in on the basis of your brokenness that's the point of identity that really ironically that
0: draws people in I remember one time you were encouraging me along this line of thinking I was drinking the Kool-Aid early on in the the Doug Holiday life (laughs) and we were in New York City which is intimidating for me to begin with and you asked everyone at the table to tell something interesting for the group about yourself. And none of us knew each other, we all only knew you. Mm -hmm. And this is a little story I'm gonna share with you for a minute because it's really impacted me. So person number one, these others really weren't drinking the Kool-Aid, they hadn't been around (laughs) you. So they were doing like the more typical uh, accomplishment comment. Person number one said, I've been a Wall Street Journal editor for 30 years. And I was like, whoa, I've I've (laughs) read it for 30 years. Person number two said, with an elegant accent, my family owns more South African apartments than any other family. I was like, oh my gosh. Person number three said they went to Oxford with you and on and on and on. And I went last, of course, and I'm like, what am I gonna say to this group? And it was a moment where I had to decide if I'm really going to try this, lead with my worries, lead with my perceived weaknesses, because there was nothing I could brag about to this group. So I said, hi, my name is Adam. I live in Cleveland. And that was the first oddity. They kind of turned their heads like I was a a cute animal. (laughs) Oh, how cute, Cleveland. And I said, hi, my name is Adam. My first wife left me and my father was an alcoholic. (laughs) And that's all that I said. Both are true. And I became the most interesting person at the table. The point is like your theory is accurate. And it was so true. People would then really confide in me. Oh, my sister struggles with drug abuse. Oh, this is my second marriage. So I really commend you for this unusual thinking. It really does work.
1: Well, and and you know, social scientists have have put a label on this that there's this imposter syndrome. We all mm-hmm. feel like whether we have a dream about this, that somebody's going to knock on our office door and say, "You know, you are a total fraud." And everybody I know, I don't care who they are, right. they feel like they were lucky. Don't in the deserve right place, to be there. And like, yeah, and I feel like the antidote to that is not trying to be something you aren't, but being really comfortable in your own skin. Mm-hmm. And I think. People are so drawn to that. You know, it's there was a, a writer, a Canadian writer, who wrote a book called The Wounded Healer. Mm. And I love that. We're all wounded, yes. but we can be healers yes. because our, our wounds are the very doorway into really uh, connecting with people in profound ways. This
0: reminds me of another way you connect with people. It's so impressive. I try to emulate it. One week, I was with you in Washington, and in the same week, we met a former governor who had a very public fall from grace. And then we also, you introduced me to a Kennedy family member who also had some embarrassing public news that he had to deal with. And they both embraced you in separate settings like you were their best friend. And I asked you later, how on earth do you know these people, Doug? And and you taught me to reach out to people not when they're like the most popular person in the room, but when they don't get their phone calls answered. Where do you even come up with like a a theory to do that? Or it's just natural to you. I mean,
1: it's really, it's unusual. And you may think it's no big deal, but it's very unusual. Well, I think it comes back to really knowing yourself and knowing that your own weaknesses. And and, uh, so when when I see people like that governor and they're getting very sanctimonious, I said, look, we're all wounded. We've all made mistakes. Mm -hmm. We've all not measured up to what our hopes are. And once you start understanding that, then it becomes easier. You know, you, you aren't judgmental and, um, you it's know. It's almost you, like a common denominator. We all yeah, have a common denominator yeah. that equalizes us. Exactly. And so, you know, I'm going up to New York today and I've got this group. I started it with, uh, we started it 30 years ago with John Whitehead and I, the legendary head of Goldman Sachs when we were at the State Department together. And you know, we started it and we have the top financial and CEOs in America. And uh, just a little men's group that meets? Yeah, that meets uh, the second Wednesday of every month. And uh, you've been doing this for over 20 years, right? Oh, yeah. 20, I think we started in 90. Remarkable. So it's it's great. And uh, it's such a wonderful atmosphere because everybody in there is so accomplished, but nobody talks about it. It's all about brokenness. And we'll read an article like David Brooks's article on the difference in your resume and your eulogy. And it gets them talking about, I've got a great resume, but yeah, what are people gonna remember me for?
0: My name is Adam Kaufman, and I'm thankful you're joining us today on the Up to podcast. I want to tell you about a group that I'm grateful for, and that is Town Hall, Cleveland's most popular restaurant, and one that I can say is the only place my wife tells me she can eat every meal, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Town Hall was the first all-non-GMO restaurant in the U.S. a few years ago, and they're now expanding into Columbus, Ohio soon. I'm also very selective about who we choose to partner with for this podcast, and it was with open arms that I embraced the idea of partnering with Bobby George and Town Hall. To learn more about what they're up to, you can visit townhallohiocity.com. Right now, I'd like to take a moment to talk to you about Calfee, Halter, and Griswold, a full-service corporate law firm with attorneys throughout Ohio and in Washington, D.C., Calfee's mission has been to provide meaningful legal and business counsel to entrepreneurs and investors, private business owners and nonprofits, public corporations. I've referred many successful entrepreneurs and investors to Calfee knowing how well they'd be taken care of. And it's for those reasons that I would encourage you to visit their website, calfee.com. That's C-A-L-F-E-E.com. Thank you very much to Kalfi. So you've now written a big new document, your book, and probably a lot of that will feed into your legacy, what people think of you as, and the meaning that you've given others. Yeah. I know you don't think about it because you're so humble, but you often articulate. Well, I know
1: I know myself, and I know that I'm I'm nothing special, and I. I just feel like um, trying to be as honest as you can about yourself is is freeing for others. And that's that's what I hope to do in the book. Mm -hmm. And it it was tricky, the book, because I've had the privilege, you know, it's like in that uh, Hamilton, there's a song there, I just want to be in the room. Uh, The crazy thing is for whatever reason, I been in the room for a lot of amazing things. That privilege is, is something I don't take lightly. I remember one one time when I was on the White House staff, I was working for, you know, Jim Baker was chief of staff b- who became Secretary of State and Treasury. Uh, and I was in the room with President Reagan, him, Ed Meese, and Mike Deaver. This was the troika around wow. him. The Reagan's top. top advisors. Yeah, and I was in there, I think, I must have been a note taker because I was a young guy and I'm in there. And it was an astonishing perspective. So we're there, and you know how you're with all your buddies and these three guys, every time they were talking about who was going to run the second term against Reagan. And they would say certain people, and of course, this is their good friend, and they want to say, you could kill everybody. Yeah, This, prop guy, up. this guy is a loser. You could kill him. I think I counted six times every time they did this to this one particular individual, Reagan stopped them and said, that family has suffered so much. Mm. And I walked back to my office saying, God, I want to be like that. There's no media in the room. No media in the room. Never been himself. written about. It yep. was just the privilege I had to witness mm. what character's all about.
0: And I feel like I've witnessed you delivering similar types of lessons without any media around. I know you even gave your mobile phone number to a homeless person who calls you somewhat regularly. (laughs) I mean, what Uh on earth inspired you to do that? And you now have a real relationship with Dr. So-and-so.
1: Yeah. You know, at first for years, I felt like I was in his life to fix him. And then I realized, you know, there are people in our life just to teach us how insignificant we are. And I think I got insight from a guy, this guy named Henry Nowen, who had been a priest and was a professor at Harvard and at Yale. And then he decided to spend the rest of his life with mentally and physically disabled people in a community called Larch Community, started by a Frenchman named Jean Vanier. And This is in the U.S. he was doing this? He was doing this in Canada, but this movement is spread all over Larch Community. Okay. And what he would do, Adam, he was a very well-known speaker, but... Now when he speaks, I think he's died recently, but he would take one of these mentally and physically disabled people with him and they'd stand up front in the middle of him talking. This person would interrupt him, do all this kind of thing. And he said, you know, I really used to think I was significant because I was teaching at the top, two of the top universities in the world. Now I realize how that's so unimportant. And what I'm doing here, standing here with this good friend and I probably can't get out three sentences before he just says something so inappropriate but wonderful. So I feel like this this guy that— In your life. Yeah. yeah. He, he's so good for me because uh, at first I went, I was hum- humiliated by him. And then yeah, got to was the point where I right. took him. He came to every Christmas, every Thanksgiving with me. And and I I love people seeing people's reaction because I can gauge a lot about who they the are. The others,
0: yeah. <laughs> I've been with you and you had one phone call coming in from the chairman of Bear Stearns and the next phone call was from this <laughs> ho- homeless doctor we're talking about. <laughs> yeah. And you treat him equally. And in fact, you're probably even a little more excited when the second call came in, <laughs> uh, if we're being truthful. You've done so many different things professionally, Doug, uh, in terms of working for the United States as an ambassador Wall Street, private sector, more investment-related work. What work has given you the most meaning in your life? I love how you talk about meaning so much.
1: Yeah, I, You know, it's funny. I, I feel like meaning finds you. And, and I think the problem is most people keep trying to punch their tickets so that someday they'll have a life of consequence. And I have viewed it differently. I'm going to try to be the, who I am. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. So I remember when I was at Goldman Sachs, I, 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 when somebody said, "What was your proudest achievement?" I think it was that everybody on the management committee asked me to spend time with their sons. That's and, interesting. And I thought they probably didn't even know why they were doing it, but we had had really good conversations, and you know, so many of them because of some of the things we've talked about. They love their son, but they didn't know how to connect. Right. And so I felt like that was why I was there.
0: That is an op- ultimate compliment. If you could uh, spend time with somebody's
1: child. Oh, yeah. If you yeah. could help
0: somebody's child. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Brilliant. Oh, yeah. And and, and it can't be for an ulterior motive. No. I think it's got to be that that's truly who you are and mm-hmm. why it matters. Of and, course. And uh, Because I think the tendency is, you know, I read this thing once. Uh men are men and women are looking for better programs when the real need is for better people. A program's not gonna change a life. It's a life on a life it's gonna change.
0: I'm in the airports a lot like you are and the bookstores in the airports, there's so many different books about happiness and the pursuit of happiness in different yeah. forms, whether yeah. it's fitness, happiness, or beauty, <laughs> happiness or right? financial happiness. Yeah. Meaning, capital M, yeah. is, is your favorite word. Why do you think Americans spend so much time pursuing happiness and not meaning? Like, wh- where yeah. did we get that yeah. wrong?
1: Well, I, are I, we that Yeah, or? I remember I had a big to do a couple weeks ago with my editor about this. He wanted to put happiness in the subtitle. Oh my gosh, we and, don't need another happiness yeah, book. Yeah, and I said to him, I said, I am frankly opposed to happiness. And he <laughs> said, Really? What do you mean? I said, I said. So let me, let me break this down for you. Happiness is really related to, to actions. I have a good date. I have a good bank account. I'm accomplished. It's all about exteriors. Meaning is something far deeper. Mm-hmm. And if you doubt me on that, you look at Viktor Frankl's book, which is, I commend to everybody, Man's Search for Meaning, written by a psychotherapist in the death camps. And as he was there, he, he noticed the people that survived were not the people who were the physically mo- more robust, but people who had a deeper meaning structure in their life. Purpose. I'm a violinist, someday I'm gonna go and play that violin, mm-hmm. that's my meaning. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna go back and try to find my grandchildren who left Germany before you know, they, they're alive. So they had something much more profound they were living for. And the happiness is fleeting. Oh, it's fleeting. And meaning meaning, and joy. You know, C.S. Lewis unpacks this, and he says a little different. He talks about joy, that joy is something so deep. And you can have joy even on your deathbed because it's not tied to how you look or how you feel or any of this. It's a, a profound thing. In Did the your editor listen it. to you? Were you oh, able yeah. To convince so we, him? Got, we have meaning in there instead of happiness. So one of the questions
0: <laughs> I often ask guests on the up to podcast is if you could go back and talk to the 21 year old version of yourself, what advice would you give the younger version Mm -hmm. of you? You by virtue of having a classroom where you have a lot of young people in the room, you can actually implement maybe some of the lessons
1: you've learned from your own walk in life. Well, as you know, in my 50% of their grade is writing a paper. Uh, that's informed by the readings, the class discussions, the guest speakers, Mm -hmm. and it's it's different. It's them, they're usually about average age 30 in my MBA class, highly accomplished. I said, so the 25-year-older you is writing to you now. Mm -hmm. What are they saying to you to pay attention to? Mm. So that's their paper. I said, this is going to be your map for your life, and it's going to be informed by all these amazing readings and all these amazing people that have come I in. I know you bring in guest lecturers from yeah, all walks yeah. of life. Well, and, and, and they think they're going to lecture. I said, I don't want to lecture. I want you to talk honestly about how you got through the difficult mm-hmm. times. And how do you find meaning in the middle of things? And, and this is not a business school. I will
0: remind the yeah, audience. This isn't in like some, uh, <laughs> theoretical, religious, no, no, philosophical it's not, program. It's not
1: in a school of theology or right. philosophy department. It's, it's in the belly of the beast. And you wouldn't yeah. say this, but isn't it the most requested class? They have like a point
0: system uh, yeah, to bid on classes? Yeah, it's, it's pretty
1: popular, yeah. you know. That's which, awesome. Which how, many, is- how many years have you been doing it? I think it's my fifth now. And Georgetown's you
0: know? one of the highest ranked business schools in yeah, America yeah. every year. That's, no, that- it's,
1: been a, it's been an honor. There's, they've been so good to me to let me do that. I stay out of all the politics. All I do is love the kids and right. uh, love the dean. Uh, you know, I, I love everybody I meet there, but my whole goal is just to change lives.
0: Well, I won't let you avoid the question. If you could go back to the 21-year-old version of you, is there anything you would tell your younger
1: self? You know, I think about this, and I would slightly rephrase the question. It's almost like somebody that's a good athlete, uh, a natural athlete, but doesn't push themselves to go the full level. Mm -hmm. I feel like in my life, I've been able to do pretty well because of my natural gifts, but I feel like a regret would be that I probably was afraid to be all in on some things because maybe that wouldn't work. It's almost like the athlete that says, you know, if I'd really worked hard, I could have probably made it in the NBA. But you know, because I didn't, I see
0: that's remarkable. This is your humble self coming out, because others would say he has made it. He has been an <laughs> ambassador and worked at the White House and Goldman Sachs, et cetera. But you feel like you didn't early on, at least.
1: Yeah, I go mean, full I, throttle. I, th- I think all these things were great, but probably I I left some things on the table. You know, everybody's got to go. You know, to whom much is given, much is required. Absolutely. And, and, you, and you think about, you know, everybody has their own capacity and we're supposed to be for others. And but you're
0: getting an A in life. You pulled out the Walker Percy quote early. Yeah. But you would give yourself an A, I hope, for living a full, uh, big
1: life. All I'll say is I am utterly grateful, Adam, and uh, for this life that I've, you know, made mistakes, mm-hmm. all kind of things, but amazing. And just to see the kind of relationships I've been able to have and the people uh, that somehow feel like I've been valuable to them in some small way. So many of those people. Any learnings from any of those mistakes you want to share? I think we all need to be better at forgiving and forgive ourselves and, and forgive others. I mean, I love the story Abraham Lincoln told, you know, There was withering criticism against Lincoln. They said, you weren't Eastern educated. Remember in those days, it was like Harvard, Harvard, Yale, all these things. Mm -hmm. You came out of these privileged backgrounds. And here's a guy that was home, you know, self-educated, lived in a log cabin, Mm -hmm. the whole thing. He was gangly and not attractive. He probably felt like the imposter too, the imposter syndrome. But I love what he said. So they're in this uh, equivalent of a press conference. They said, President Lincoln... This, how do you get up in the morning when you get so much criticism? And he only paused and said, I'm so much worse than they could ever know. <laughs> what a refreshing, I, candid thing I, to say. And I think of that myself. When I start getting pissy about, you know, this person criticizing me, I said, I'm so much worse than yeah, they know. Yeah, if they own. only knew. I, yeah. it's like <laughs> That's good. And once you kind of accept that you're flawed and you're not... That hot? Yeah. Oh, my gosh, it's so freeing. Do you
0: ever think about, you've mentioned several historical figures, other influential people in your life, either famous or not famous, people you know or don't know, any big influences on you?
1: Oh, boy, there's so many of them. There's so many of them. Didn't you write a paper on William Wilberforce? Yeah, yeah. Now, historically, Wilberforce would be my historical model uh and a lawmaker in
0: england right yeah, a yeah
1: lawmaker who abolished slavery It took him 47 years mm. so in in his 20s he wrote in his diaries had god almighty has put before me two things the reformation of manners which was the moral climate of england and the release of the slaves and he spent 47 years on that mm. i mean we'd all love that and he died three weeks after, in 1833, Parliament abolished slavery. Mm. I mean, that's like... What a legacy. A, I his mean, life's work. Yeah, his life's work. I mean, I say to people, so the, the thing you can get frustrated, because most of us don't have the privilege of knowing, God, at 22, I get it. He he seemed to know it. He gave up politics. He could have been prime minister. His best friend was William Pitt, who was youngest prime minister in England ever at 22. But instead of going there... He just said, I'm going to be an independent. I'm going to galvanize. And he changed the world. Mm. He knew that some people uh, were moved by the the sheer inhumanity of slavery, but others had real vested interests. It was an industry. Yeah, an industry. This was the equivalent to the defense industry in America. Everybody was connected in some way to slave trade. Capitalizing on the slave trade. So he cut an economic deal... The government paid the equivalent of 50% of the value of what a market value of a slave. To the slave owners. the slave, slave owners, yeah. So that they wouldn't be bankrupt and send the country into a terrible recession.
0: You know? I can tell talking to you for our listeners here, you're excited. Your posture changes. What gives you the most excitement right now as you think about the future? What are you really excited about?
1: I love what we're doing in Path North because... Path I, North is a D.C.-based Yeah, D.C.-based. Non-profit. It's a nonprofit where I started it with a bunch of leaders maybe nine years ago. And the whole purpose was to create a safe a context where people could explore the most important things in life. So that's been fun to see them open up. What types of people. things do you do
0: in Path North to get them to open up?
1: Oh, we take trips, short trips, have dinners, have experiences that force people out of their comfort zone to get them really considering life from a different angle. And I think that's that's what changes them. As you know, when we went to England that time, we didn't tell them, but we took them to Don Le Noir, which was a restaurant, in French it means, in the dark. So we take them into this uh, restaurant owned and run by blind people. So we have these high-control type people mm-hmm. for two hours are in pitch black. Utter with, darkness, with your a, eyes don't adjust. Yeah, your eyes don't adjust with a blind waiter. Mm-hmm. You don't know what you're eating, you don't know what you're doing. And then we talk about, so what's it like to be denied something so important to you? And what did this evoke in you? So so these powerful leaders are saying, golly, that was insecure. I had the former Secretary
0: of the Navy, like, touching my knee every 15 minutes just to make sure from a security standpoint that <laughs> somebody like, I, was there. still right there. The next day, we also went to both Wimbledon, which in all its opulence is a wonderful place to see a sporting event, particularly with Stan Smith with the Wimbledon (laughs) champion. But then right after that, we went to a maximum security prison where inmates served us a meal. And then you led a discussion about resilience. What does it mean to be resilient? Is it more like the athlete who overcame his opponent that day, or is it more like the waiter who told us he wanted to break three generations of crime in his family and learn how to serve? Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Amazing that you think of these ways to disrupt people's minds and hearts a little bit and get them to open up.
1: And we all are more alike than we're, than we're different. And I know some people freaked out when I'd say to her waiter, why are you in here? And I mm-hmm. know the guy had murdered some people. Right. And, you know, it's like, God, he might have made a bad choice. We didn't. Yeah. But, you know. One small decision can lead to a bigger or bad
0: decision. Oh, okay.
1: But it gets you in touch with your own frailty. Yes. And, and once you look at anybody through that lens, it really does change you. You know, it really does uh, Absolutely. change your life. And uh, Well, Doug Holiday, you have changed
0: me for the mm, past four years, well, I likewise, would like to say man. for the better, and I hope our listeners will be somehow changed through uh, this discussion today. So I'm just so grateful you spent some of your valuable time with us. Oh, thanks, Thank so. you for being a part of Up To. Thank you, appreciate it. Following up on our terrific conversation with Ambassador Doug Holly, there are a couple of reference points I wanted to share. One, he referenced the book The Wounded Healer, and that was written by Henri Nguyen, a Dutch Catholic priest and a theologian. Secondly, Doug also mentioned, frankly, one of my favorite passages in the New Testament when he talks about to whom much is given, much is expected. And that's from the book of Luke, chapter 12, actually. And now my five biggest takeaways from today's episode with Doug. Number one, it's not good for man or women to be alone for too long. Bad things happen to people who become isolated. Number two, develop a language to discuss what really matters. For instance, what would your children say is most important to you? Number three, our point of identity with people is not our strengths, but rather our weaknesses. Leading with our weakness or our worries draws people closer to us. Number four, don't underestimate your own capacity to take risk and to challenge yourself. And number five, once we accept that we're actually flawed and not so brilliant, it's really freeing. A special thank you to all of our listeners, to each of you. I'd love to know about a favorite moment or even a favorite episode. You can email me at adam at uptofoundation.org. Up 2 is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to our producer and audio engineer, Dave Douglas. I'm your host, Adam Kaufman, and thank you so much for listening to the Up To podcast.